the National Archives podcast series, The Children of Henry VIII, presented by John Guy, as part of our Writer of the Month series of talks. In, in 1544, in July 1544, Henry VIII asked his children to a dinner, his surviving children, to a dinner. He was 53. He was just about to sail for Boulogne to lead his army from the rear uh, in battle against uh, Francis I. In, in fact, he took uh, Boulogne on that campaign. And naturally, as he was about to leave the country, he settled the succession uh, in conjunction with Parliament in the third act of succession. And this provided it was the final succession settlement of the reign. This provided that he would be succeeded in turn uh, and, of course, on the principle of what was then primogeniture uh, by his surviving children first, uh, Edward, uh, the uh, son of Jane Seymour, uh, then uh, by Mary, uh, his daughter by Catherine of Aragon, who's on the left, uh, and then by his uh, daughter, if all else failed, Elizabeth on the right-hand side. Uh, the people, if you're intrigued, the people in these little alcoves here on either side are uh, the king's fools. This picture tells a story. In the first place, it's a bit of a fiction. It's a genuine picture, but it's a bit of a fiction. Because, of course, and naturally, Henry didn't invite his wife to the dinner, only his children. And he didn't invite... Uh, that wife couldn't have been invited because that wife is Jane Seymour, and when that painting was done, she'd been dead for seven years. Jane Seymour, of course, was Henry's perfect queen uh, because uh, within a few months of the wedding... She had done what Princess Diana was able to do to such great effect to produce an heir, a male heir. Uh, Edward, unfortunately, she then died as the consequences of the, the childbirth, which, of course, in Henry's eyes made her the perfect queen because she had done what she needed to do and then died. So she could commit no, she could commit no, 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 no wrong. In 1544, when that's done, the queen is actually Catherine Parr, whom we will come to uh, a, little, a little bit later. Catherine Parr was almost certainly... Uh, the, um, the person who recommended the artist of this um, of painting. Uh, Catherine Parr was a rather keen art uh, collector and patron. She was, unlike Henry, who was just a consumer of art, uh, she was an, an art connoisseur. Uh, but, of course, uh, in 1544, Holbein has been dead for a year, so this wasn't going to be Hans Holbein the Younger. Uh, we don't actually know who painted this. We know who painted some of the other pictures which uh, Catherine uh, commissioned. Again, we will come to that a little bit later. Now, Henry settles the succession, and this is, this is the order. Um, he had, of course, grave reservations about having a woman at all in the succession. Uh, and we know what his views are on female monarchy, because in 1531, during his first divorce campaign in um, the preface to a track called A Glass of the Truth, which was essentially a pamphlet justifying his divorce, which he had printed. Uh, he actually says that the problem with a woman ruler is that they'll need a husband. Uh, and that's either going to be a subject, in which case you know, that can cause faction within the realm, or it's going to be a foreign prince, in which case England becomes the client of a foreign state. Neither of these is satisfactory. So he had grave reservations about this. And actually, one of the reasons why it takes him so long to actually get his thoughts clear on the succession is precisely this problem. Uh, but actually, to be quite sure, as he believed, that this was going to go you know, the way that um, he, he wanted. After all, Henry is trying to, in, in effect, to rule from the grave. He's trying to actually fix the future for the dynasty. 
Uh, he actually says in the Acts of Succession that the conditions upon which all of these will be allowed to succeed will be laid down in his will. The final conditions will be laid down in his last will and testament. And this he actually does when he dies, in, just before he dies in 1547. And what's really interesting about that, Henry's will is in the archives here. It's actually, you can actually download it for nothing. It's one of the few documents you can download from documents online entirely for free. It's actually worth, you know, if you can cope with the handwriting, it's actually worth reading because it, it actually doesn't say what most historians of conventually says it says. And one of the things that it does say that's very little remarked on, but actually rather important, and we will keep referring to it in this talk, uh, is that if Edward succeeded, as indeed he did, once he was 18, that's fine, he's of age, he can marry. If either of the women succeed, they can only marry with the assent and consent of as many of the councillors of regency whom he appoints to govern while Edward is not yet 18. A councillor of regency is appointed by Henry uh, in his last will. The girls have to get the consent of the members of that, that, that council or as many as are still surviving, whether they live to be a hundred. They can, and, and so the cultural, the cultural norm here, you need to pick up on this, the cultural norm is that essentially girls are perpetual minors. They, they, this is not an age of equal opportunities. Even among princes, in fact, only, only one person, to my knowledge, uh, in Europe, believed that rank could trump gender in the 16th century, and that was Torquato Tasso at Abino. In the 16th century, uh, the male gender always trumps the female, however you know, exalted um, the woman is. Of course, Henry also had another son, and here he is. Henry Fitzroy, the illegitimate son that he had with one of his mistresses, Elizabeth or Bessie Blunt, uh, and Fitzroy was born in 1519. Uh, Fitzroy, from the beginning, was recognised as his son by Henry, Wolsey is given the job of uh, supervising the arrangements for uh, Bessie Blunt's accouchement, her lying in. Uh, this boy is given an absolutely top ex education, the most expensive education that can possibly be found for him. His tutors include John Palsgrave, a friend of Thomas More, somebody who'd also been the French tutor of Henry VIII's younger sister, Mary, the one that married Louis XII of, of France. Uh, he wasn't a hugely uh, dedicated student. I'm afraid he had various run-ins with his tutors, particularly his second tutor, a Cambridge uh, expert in Greek called uh, Richard uh, Crook. But we can actually tell that he refused to basically go to school. I mean, he refused to go into the classroom. He, he, he wanted to go hunting. He wanted to get a child's suit of armour. He wanted to go hawking, all of, all of those things. And I'm afraid his tutors just had to... They had to write the equivalent of what in Cambridge are called supervision reports at the end of something. His tutors just had to lie. You know, he's doing really well, and, and et cetera, et cetera. Otherwise, of course, they would, they would get the blame. They would get the blame for this. But you can actually see... One of the really interesting things about this is that uh, you can see here that the, the first thank you letter that he wrote to Dad when he was seven for a New Year's gift. In the sixth century, you didn't get Christmas presents, you got a presents at New Year, you exchanged gifts at New Year. And he got a, a gift at New Year from, from Dad, and he writes this, this letter. Now, you, you can see that this is actually, actually rather readable, actually, for the sixth century. This is the, the, the latest and most fashionable, it's, it's a young child's attempt at it, but it's an attempt at the, 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 at the most sophisticated and the latest and most fashionable Italian form of handwriting known as the Italic script. And this actually tells us, almost at a glance, 
that, I mean, very few people can teach that. Palsgrave could, Thomas More could, could this is what his daughters learned, uh, Crook could. There's this, there's this battle to make sure that this boy is brought up in the most sophisticated and the latest fashionable school by the best possible tutors. Of course, there's a big argument even about his handwriting. You will quite understand that in the 16th century, it was not considered to be the thing for noblemen or, gen or, or, or gentlemen to be too learned. You know, the equivalent of hunting, shooting and fishing, those are the values which are most, uh, most, most prized by the aristocracy in the 16th century. Very few nobles, uh, Lord Morley is, um, is, is, is one, were uh, wanted to be educated and, and were hugely literate. Henry, of course, because he... Henry um, VIII, that is, because uh, he is the, becomes the heir to the throne after his brother Arthur's death is given a top education. Uh, by the way, that's also indicative because he didn't get a top education until he became heir to the throne. That's another thing that we'll keep encountering in this lecture. To get the top education, you've got to be in the, the succession. And, of course, the punchline is that this boy from the beginning, Henry had a gleam in his eye to make him his heir. Bastardy was not a problem in the succession of the 16th century because you could acquire the throne in two different ways, forgetting battles, of course. Henry VII got it in battle, but you could acquire the throne in two different ways. One was by inheritance. And for that, you obviously had to be legitimate. But the other one is by designation. Uh, a, a sitting king could designate somebody to be his heir. And, of course, for Henry, there would have to be designation. These little details actually matter. For Henry, there was going to have to be designation anyway. Because, of course, if you had daughters, daughters did not... In, it was not winner-take-took-all. It was not the elder or the eldest that took all if it was daughters. If it was sons, yes. But daughters, it was the equivalent of a shared inheritance. It was the King Lear situation, where they, it was shared out equally amongst all of them. And therefore, to avoid that situation, Henry was going to, if he was going to have Mary than Elizabeth, he would have to do designation in a will anyway. So it was perfectly feasible for Fitzroy to be designated as his successor. And indeed, in 1525, Fitzroy, astonishingly, is made Duke of Richmond, uh, Duke of Somerset, uh, and Earl of Nottingham. And, of course, Somerset and Richmond are royal titles. Henry VII, before he won the throne, had been the Earl of Richmond. You know, this, is, this is a ticket to the jackpot. And it was uncontroversial. Thomas More read the letters patent at the ceremony when this boy was invested uh, to these titles because, of course, it was More's belief, of course, that whoever got the throne, that was a matter for Parliament. When he quarrelled with Henry VIII, it was about the religion, it was about the royal supremacy. Could the king be supreme head of the church? But when um, Moore had that conversation in the Tower with Richard Rich, the one that got him, in that conversation, when Rich said to Thomas Moore, you know, can basically a king be declared by Parliament and a king unseated by, you know, by Parliament? And Moore said, absolutely, because that's a matter within Parliament's competence. So there was no real problem about this. The problem about obtaining the throne, if you were a bastard, was that it didn't work if your parents, uh, or, were, or one of your parents particularly your father, if either of your parents was living at the time in an incestuous relationship, it didn't work. That was the, because that's what canon law said. Yes, bizarre as this may sound, but trust me, this is, this is, this is, this, this is, this is how it is. Now, this woman, of course, changed everything, because when Henry met this woman, Anne Boleyn, in 1526, by 1527, he was determined that he was going to marry her. She was the love of his life. I mean, you can't get away from this. I mean, it's been said before, but it's absolutely true. The problem was that in order to advance his divorce from Catherine of Aragon at Rome, 
a central part of Henry's case was that his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, who was, of course, Henry's elder brother Arthur's widow, was not just that it was unlawful, because Leviticus said so, but that it was unnatural and incestuous. It was essentially, you know, a, a sexual crime that was so heinous that the Pope had to do something about it. Uh, and that argument, when Catherine of Aragon first heard that Fitzroy, basically his chances of succession, was sunk, you know, of course she was exultant. When she found out the reason, of course, she, you know, that, uh, that she got a punch in the face because, of course, now it, this showed that Henry really was serious about, um, about, about marrying Anne Boleyn. Uh, and, of course, when she does marry uh, Henry, she finds, of course, that naturally that he's not just got Fitzroy around there. And Fitzroy is you know, still a significant figure. Uh, she finds, of course, that he's got his daughter, Mary. And, you know, however sentimental one might feel about, you know, this great romance and about, about Anne Boleyn, this woman was a tiger when it came to protecting the interests of her own family. And she was bloody to both Mary and uh, to, uh, to Fitzroy. Mary in particular. Why, of course, because what Anne can produce, uh, she has a number of uh, stillbirths, miscarriages. Uh, what Anne can produce is the Princess Elizabeth in September 1530. Three, uh, Henry is pleased, but not that pleased. Um, you know, she gets the proper christening. She gets the full works of the, you know, the sort of the state christening at Greenwich Palace. But the tournament afterwards is cancelled. Any boys, you know, have that honour. But of course, in order to protect her daughter's interests, she um, turns on Mary, and. You know, apart from various references which you can find, which may or may not be true in the state papers and the dispatches of the Spanish Armada, that she actually wanted to poison uh, Mary, that you can take or leave. She fixed it so that uh, the young Mary, who is then 17, is stuck like a cuckoo in the nest into uh, Elizabeth's, uh, the Princess Elizabeth's nursery as number two. Remember that um, the interesting thing about that first image that I put up of essentially the family group, except it's the wrong queen, is that again it creates a, it's a little bit like, you know, if you like, happy families. Uh, the royal children were with their parents as a group, as far as I know, at least twice, but probably not more than three times in Henry's entire reign. They did not live with their parents. They were brought up in separate nurseries, which would be at different palaces usually a few miles, but sometimes, you know, the parents could be much further away. So Mary is basically, having been at court, she's now shipped off to be, if you like, the cuckoo in the nest of the young baby Princess Elizabeth. And this is where the enmity that Mary has for Elizabeth first comes to the fore. Because, of course, you know, you've got children. They all want to sit in the front seat when they're whatever age it is to sit in the front seat. Uh, they, Mary Elizabeth, little toddler, this much older, um, you know, she's... At this time, she's almost 19, is, is Mary. They're squabbling about who's sitting in the front seat in the royal barge. Mary won't ride in the same horse litter as Elizabeth, and she insists on going in front. You know, she is absolutely bloody uh, in a, to her, um, her half-sister. Uh, and this is, the beginning of a, 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 this is the beginning of a dynamic which really lasts uh, throughout all their lives. Now, uh, for Fitzroy, Anne is subtler. Uh, she basically knows that the way to do it is to marry him off to a relative non-entity. Uh, not quite a non-entity, but somebody pretty safe, because the danger is that Fitzroy is going to marry a foreign princess, a French princess or something like that, in which case, you know, who knows? 
Henry, you know, might get this he might get this business of the marriage sorted out and, you know, no longer would be he living in an incestuous relationship, dot, dot, dot. So Anne, so Anne contrives that Fitzroy is married to Mary Howard, who is uh, the daughter of her uncle in the Howard family, keeping it all in the family, keeping Fitzroy firmly under the thumb of her, uh, her, her, her circle. Uh, but, of course, uh, when uh, Anne has her last miscarriage, the 15-week-old male fetus, Henry decides that his wedding to her is damned by God as well. Henry had this remarkable ability to adapt, you know, God and his conscience to exactly what he wanted to happen. And and so she is, and of course, the fact that he loved her so much at the beginning, of course, this just turns to this poisonous hate uh, right at the end of the, uh, right at the end of the relationship. Fitzroy, I'm afraid, dies within a couple of months of Anne Boleyn getting chopped. So Fitzroy is written out of the, one of the might-have-beens of history is what would have happened if Fitzroy had, had, had lived. Now, Catherine Parr, Catherine Parr, whom we first met as the woman not in the first picture, uh, was actually queen uh, at the time that was done in 1544. And here she is in what's now recognised to be an authentic uh, image by Master John, a German painter, one of the people that she collected. Uh, She had six or seven tame uh, painters who were in her, her, her circle. It's rather a good image. She's gone down in history... Uh, certainly in the secondary printed sources, is a bit of a blue stocking. Actually, this is nonsense. She was 32. She was incredibly good-looking. She was a stunner for the time. She was clearly still uh, uh, fertile. She had not passed the menopause. It's extremely unlikely that Henry would ever picked her if he thought that she was past the menopause and, you know, wasn't a bit of a looker. Uh, that wasn't his way. Also, he still wanted more male sons. He got Edward by then, but he still wanted more, more, more sons. Uh, she is learned, she is advanced in religion, she is somebody who, uh, if you like, the expert historians call an evangelical, which is, if you like, a halfway house between uh, Catholicism without the Pope and and Protestantism. Evangelicals basically want uh, a much more personal religion based on the Gospel, uh, much less sort of nuance of detailed theology. Uh, but there, there is sort of, if you like, in that it's uh, the Reformation is is a, is a trajectory. It's a moving target, and they're in that middling, they're in that middling, 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 middling position. Uh, uh, she knows to keep her religious opinions, indeed all her opinions, to herself. Jane Seymour had got this best. Remember, Anne Boleyn talked too much. Anne Boleyn was a great talker. She knew how to behave as a mistress, but not as a wife. For Henry, women kept their place. Even queens took them. Fine for Anne to answer him back when, she, when he was courting her, but not after they were married. Jane Seymour probably gets this best. She makes her motto bound to obey and serve. Uh, but, but Catherine Parr knows to keep her opinions to herself. In fact, actually, she is quite active in building a circle uh, of reformed evangelicals like herself, men who actually do rather a lot later on after Henry's reign to advance the Protestant Reformation in, in England, but that's a different story. Now, the thing is that she's 32 and uh, the Princess Mary is 28. And those two, even though actually their religions are really quite different, because Mary's been brought up as a staunch Catholic, these um, two rather hit it off. Uh, And they go shopping together. They love clothes. Uh, Catherine Parr uh, bought 250 pairs of shoes in two years. Uh, Mary was um, keen on all of that, but she also loved Spanish leather gloves, and she ordered those by the box, imported those by the box load. Here we go. This is the Princess Mary by the same artist, except, of course, that she's not the Princess Mary. She's now the Lady Mary, 
because when Henry first changed the succession, at the time of marrying Anne Boleyn, he stripped Mary of her title of princess. He also made her recognise his authority as supreme head of the church, which was a, a regret that she took to her grave that she had signed and consented to, to, to that. But she's the Lady Mary, uh, uh, and of course, after the fall of Anne Boleyn, Elizabeth II was stripped of her title. You know, you see all those images of her, uh, uh, of the reproductions of a, of a painting that I will show you a little bit later. It's always called the Princess Mary. She was not the Princess Mary, then she was the Lady Mary. They were both very exercised about this, um, and they both thought that they should be restored to the title of Princess, but not the, not the other, of course. But this is, this is Mary. Uh, and actually, that's her, one of her, not exactly shopping lists, but that's one of her tailor's uh, accounts. Uh, and uh, you can see that in the... Um, if I walk away from this, you won't be able to hear. So, and my copy of this is very, very um, uh, small. But I'll, I'll write it. Item, you see, the first entry on the top line is item for making a French gown of crimson cloth uh, uh, of silver. Uh, and the next is for um, ten yards of frieze. You know, this was top. This was top stuff. This was really expensive. This was really, you know, I mean, forget Dior. This is sort of, you know, well, there are really only two or three people in the whole of Tudor England wearing these sort of things. One is Catherine Parr, uh, one is uh, Mary, and the other one is, uh, to a lesser extent, uh, Henry VIII's niece, um, uh, Margaret Douglas. Uh, the daughter of his elder sister, Margaret, who marries the Earl of, uh, uh, Earl of Lennox. And actually, what well, a really interesting thing about it, if you're interested in costume history, this is your place. There's more here than any one person can cope with at any one time. Um, about two years ago, Sotheby's asked me to do a bit of research, um, consultancy for them about a picture, and one of the keys to this was the costume, and it was of Mary Tudor's reign. All Mary Tudors, when she's queen, all she loved clothes. All her tailor's accounts and you know, requisitions every six months, are there on huge streets of parchment. Absolutely astonishing. Absolutely, you know, the detail of it all is, 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 is amazing. So that's really one of the ways in which, see, normally for this sort of stuff you use state papers, which, you know, you have to be able to read, uh, because the printed calendars are usually very inadequate. But, but this is not quite virgin territory. These are in the accounts. Accounts are, if, you're a, if you want the detail, accounts, everything's got to be paid for. The Tudors are awfully good at keeping accounts. Uh, and so the accounts are, are, are so often the way in. Mary um, did not have the sort of totally posh education that Fitzroy had, and that was another bone of contention. In the first place, Fitzroy had got his tutor when he was six, which a boy did if he was in the succession to the throne, and he got top tutors. Again, that tells you something. She didn't get a tutor till she was nine, and she did get Juan Luis Vivas, and yes, you're going to tell me that he was a great Spanish humanist, and he was a great friend of Thomas More, as indeed he was. And he wrote a book in favour of women's education, except when you read it, it's, a, it's the most, about the most reactionary statement on the merits of women's education you could possibly find. Uh, because women of, in, in Vivas' book were ready to read pious books and works on religion. They weren't to read anything, you know, that was worth reading. They could read certain bits of Cicero, but they couldn't read dodgy books like Tacitus or, you know, Suetonius or anything like that. Uh, and basically, it's not quite... Um, even Erasmus of Rotterdam had to be converted to women's education. I mean, the, when early in his life, Erasmus of Rotterdam said, well, for women, it's distaff and spindle, you know, that's for them. You know, and, and religion and prayer, you know, maybe a few, you know, prayers, but not actually proper books. But Thomas More, who... who but even Thomas More, when Margaret Roper, his daughter's married name, when Margaret More... Um, you know, who was a brilliant, brilliant student, Latin, Greek, wonderful. She could correct mistakes in Erasmus by the time she was uh, 18. 
And when she wants to write a book, I mean, her father just went, oh, you can't do that. A girl can't do that. It's impossible. You bring the whole thing into, into discredit. I mean, so uh, they, you know, some of these women were pushing at margins, but, but I suspect not, uh, not Mary. Now, Elizabeth, uh, who we last uh, met as um, little more than a toddler, um, squabbling with her uh, half-sister over who had the front seat in the front of the barge. This is an, an authentic image. Um, you can take your pick as to when it was painted. The dating of this is hugely complicated. Uh, it, she's, somewhere, she's somewhere between 13 and, and 17 in, for complicated reasons. You have to read the book. In the book, for complicated reasons, I opt for a later date than an earlier date, but th there are reasons why. The, the problem is that the picture is mentioned in Henry VIII's inventory of goods, but the problem is that Henry's inventory of goods wasn't just made in a second, it was still being compiled at least three years and possibly up to six years after his death. So that's your first problem, and it's also the second to last entry. The other problem is that there's a letter that, that Elizabeth, who got on best, best of all with her half-brother Edward, in Edward's reign, and because of course their, as they grew up their religious opinions were more aligned. Uh, Elizabeth came to see Edward at court in 1551. Uh, just after Christmas, and they went to a bear baiting together. Uh, and they obviously had a good time. And afterwards, Elizabeth sent him a letter saying, I'm sending you my picture, and I hope you like it. And the trick about painting, she knew, Elizabeth knew about painting, she knew, she, knew, she, knew, she knew the theory of Renaissance art, that you don't just see the outward image, you look into the person and see the soul through the image. It's not just a photograph, it's actually an interpretation of the mind and soul of the person. And this letter is dated um, from Hatfield, which was where one of the houses that she had, from Hatfield this 15th day of May. Well, the detail is all. In Tudor history, the detail is all. The letter's here in the archives. Uh, detail is all. Elizabeth was only in Hatfield on the 15th of May in 1551. So if that picture goes with that letter, she's 17. Uh, if, she's, if, if, if the letter refers to a different picture, which is possible, then anybody's guess as to when that was done. But 1547 doesn't do it, because the Ed Edwards inventory was still being compiled for th up to three, six years after his, his death. Elizabeth, her education, in a way, is a sort of key to the story. Henry doesn't even think of giving her a tutor. Why? Because he's not really seriously thinking of her in the succession. Uh, but uh, uh, in, in her nursery, and later at the houses that she's, she's allowed to live in, uh, like uh, Hunsdon, Ashridge, Hatfield, of course, uh, uh, in the old palace at, at Hatfield, um, the woman who becomes very important in her household and later becomes her chief gentlewoman is a woman called uh, Catherine Champenard, uh, who is the sister-in-law of Anthony Denny, Henry VIII's chief gentleman of the Privy Chamber. Uh, and um, uh, Catherine Champenard, you will know better, she called herself Cat, is Cat Ashley. Uh, you can, it can be Ashley or Astley, whichever you, know, you, you want. It was interchangeable in the 16th century. I've gone for Ashley. Uh, but um, this is, and Cat Ashley uh, was teaching her off her own bat to read and write. But Cat Ashley, without probably consulting Denny, but you know, Henry wasn't interested, clearly brought in somebody to teach her because when that first picture that we saw in 1544 was done. A few days before that, Elizabeth wrote a letter to Catherine Parr in fluent Italian. Now, admittedly, she just copied it from a template. But it's nicely written, and it's in Italian. 
Uh, and at the very, very last minute, if you get this, if you buy this book, you will see that at the very last minute, I discovered who her first ch- tutor was, a man called John Pixon. Um, but, uh, and I managed to get it in the index, but there's no reference because there was no, because you couldn't renumber the footnotes uh, once the thing had gone into, into, into page proof. But John Pixon, actually, the, 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 if you're interested, the source for this is in the Beddingfield Papers. Uh, uh, and uh, John Pickton or Pickton, clearly he's in there before William Grindle. Now, William Grindle comes into the story, but again, Elizabeth is relatively old before she gets uh, a tutor. Later, after William Grindle dies, she gets Roger Ashen. But Elizabeth is only getting a top education when she's actually in the succession. Do you see what I mean? If she's not in the succession, she's you know, basically, don't worry about her, you know, she, you know, no point wasting money on tutors, etc. It's a very interesting part of the part of the story. But after Henry's death, Elizabeth is right in the firing line, really inadvertently. Because, of course, when Catherine Parr married Henry, she was, of course, already in love with Thomas Seymour, Sir Thomas Seymour. Sir Thomas Seymour, the younger brother of Jane Seymour, uh, whose elder brother uh, was uh, the Earl of Hertford, Edward Seymour, Earl of Hertford, later uh, the Duke of Somerset, uh, later made Lord Protector in Edward VI's reign. And Thomas Seymour, he was somebody who was not, um, they were not brought up within the constraints of um, uh, the sort of um, codes of etiquette which we have today. This guy was a bit like Sir Walter Rawley, or the second Earl of Essex. He was dashing, he was an adventurer, he was a risk taker in a big way. But Catherine Parr was in love with him and with what Mary, uh, Henry's uh, elder daughter, uh, believed to be in decent haste he resumed his relationship with Catherine Parr, who was given uh, the manor of Chelsea. Uh, not, that wasn't Thomas More's house. The manor of Chelsea is not where Thomas More's house was. Thomas More's house was next door. Uh, the manor of Chelsea and of Cleves had been pensioned off there for a while, and also the manor of Hanworth in Middlesex, which was Anne Boleyn's favourite um, manor. She was given those two uh, to, to live in. Uh, uh, but from a uh, very few days after Henry VIII's death, Catherine Parr was letting this bloke in uh, through the front door of her house at Chelsea, and she, you know, he, they basically went straight upstairs together. Uh, so this was a bit of a scandal. But, of course, T- Thomas Seymour was ambitious. Uh, when Henry died, he left this Regency Council, as I mentioned at the beginning, of 16 people, and that had no number one. It was literally meant to be a conciliar board. It was a committee who was supposed to operate consensually. Now, of course, in the past, Henry VI... Um, you know, had either had um, some sort of mental breakdown, the latest mad theory is porphyria, but um, some sort of mental break- breakdown, depression or you know, possibly, possibly bipolar disorder. Uh, a Lord Protector had been appointed, but of course it was hugely contentious because Richard Duke of York had tried to get it and that was in a way the beginning of the Wars of the Roses. But it was absolutely conventional that you had a Lord Protector uh, and also a Governor of the King's person, i.e. a Guardian, and those offices could be the same person or they could be split. Now, of course, Henry is dead. There are these 16 people. Ambition, politicking, you know, backstairs intrigue. Hartford uh, is able to pull off a sort of mini internal coup and get himself appointed both Lord Protector and Governor of Edward's person. Now, that wasn't such a terrible idea. After all, somebody had to take charge. If you're a nobleman or you're somebody on this committee of 16, do you really, you're busy, you know, you've got other things to do, do you really want to be having to go in and you know, do government work you know, every day? You might not. So the idea of having a law protect wasn't, wasn't a stupid idea. 
the problem was that Somerset believes that he's, he almost believes that he's a king. He's not, he's a, he behaves like a viceroy and he doesn't consult the other colleagues, so that gets him into a bit of hot water. But he's also, of course, besieged from the very beginning by this younger brother because the younger brother, Thomas, wanted to be governor of the king's person. He thought that it was okay for Somerset to be protector, but he wanted recognition as governor of the king's person, and he doesn't get it. So he sets about subverting uh, his brother by, by every way he can. And one of those ways is he manages to get... You know, this is amazing. You know that at all the royal palaces, there were two... There, there were locks on all the doors. Uh, otherwise, stuff would just go out on the back of a lorry. And there were, there were two doors, two locks on, on all the doors. But there was another uh, sort of key that... Uh, where just one key opened the lock. And the king had that. Henry VIII had that. It was really called the golden key. It opened every door in the palace. Seymour, Thomas Seymour manages to get a duplicate of this magic key. And he sneaks in and he basically gives Edward, you know, the young Edward, nine years old, he slips in pocket money out of, extra pocket money out of his back pocket uh, to buy things. And so he you know, strikes up quite a rapport uh, with Edward. But, of course, he marries Catherine Parr. And he also, he's not governor of Edward's person, he also, because Catherine Parr is the stepmother of the Lady Elizabeth, he gets Elizabeth put in their household. Uh, now, that probably would be okay. That would probably be enough, but it's not enough for Seymour because within really a few weeks of getting Elizabeth at Chelsea and Hanworth, he is making up to her. And this is vividly described. It's vividly described in the documents which are actually now at Hatfield House. They're not actually here. Uh, there are bits and pieces here in the interrogation of the various people afterwards, but the main sources are at Hatfield House. He was making up to her. He was going into her bedroom early in the morning. He was pulling the curtains apart. He was getting on the bed, tickling her. This caused a really terrible scandal. Of course, Dave Starkey calls this child abuse. Elizabeth then is uh, 14. But um, actually, I think, the, uh, by contemporary values, the most scandalous thing about this was that Seymour was, of course, already married. If he'd not been married, it might not have been so terrible uh, to have made up to. But clearly, he's looking to the future. If Catherine Parr pops her clogs in childbirth, you know, then he's making up to uh, Elizabeth. But the effect of this is that Elizabeth is sent away. Elizabeth is sent away to, to well, first of all, to Chessant, uh, and after that, which is Denny, Sir Denny's house, which, of course, Denny, remember, is the, um, uh, the brother-in-law of Kate Ashley, Kat Ashley. Uh, and um, she's sent away uh, to, um, to Hatfield, and this is the letter that she writes the moment that she gets there. Truly, I was replete with sorrow to depart from your highness, especially since you were undoubtful of health. And albeit I answered uh, little, I weighed it more deeper when you said you would warn me of all evils that you should hear of me. And basically, Catherine and um, Elizabeth have said goodbye uh, at the gates of uh, Chelsea Manor. Catherine's basically read the riot act to her about her behaviour, or at least her, this, the, the potential of a sex scandal here. Remember, there's nothing more lethal in Tudor politics, as indeed in modern politics, than a, in a racy sex scandal. Uh, and, and Elizabeth has clearly said nothing. But on the way back, she's thought about this, and she realises that Catherine has offered to, tip, you know, to keep her boast posted, basically, and to help her to get herself out of this. Uh, it is a narrow squeak, a very, very narrow squeak for Elizabeth. Very narrow squeak. Uh, that um, she, um, she is, has, it's a searing experience. As she, it thrusts her into adulthood. This is where she learns, learns not only just what men are like, but what politics are like. Because, of course, the assumption is that she's, going to, she's pregnant by Thomas Seymour. 
the rumour is racing around that she's pregnant by Thomas Seymour. She has to write a, a, a letter to um, Protector Somerset, and, you know, basically refuting, re- refuting this, but you know, people are not, not, not sure about it. And of course, remember that Henry had said that she wasn't allowed to marry without the consent of the council. She would be out of the succession if she was, uh, if she was caught out in anything like that. But of course, for us, this letter is a double whammy. You, one just loves this when you hit them in the archives, because of course, look, look at that hand. That is a perfect Italian Renaissance hand. It's in English, but it's, it, this, is, this, is, this shows that Elizabeth had the most expensive education by the best possible tutors that money could buy. Uh, of course, by now, she's considered to be a possible contender, uh, you know, should um, either have, uh, her elder siblings die. Edward, of course. Uh, I have to say about Edward, think of Henry VIII without the subtlety. Uh, this boy is made king at nine years old. Somerset does treat him like a minor. Uh, Somerset, because of the scandal over Thomas Seymour and Elizabeth, Somerset's enemies on the Privy Council bring him down in 1549. And a new regime comes in, in a sort of really a palace putsch. Uh, and this new regime is presided over by uh, John Dudley, Earl of Warwick, who makes himself Duke of Northumberland. Uh, uh, he runs a much tighter and a much more effective ship because he has an actually, he's a military man. He's made his name actually as a naval commander. But he is smart because he realises that this boy is going to grow up one day and he's going to have to work with him if he, he survives. So he just basically treats him, uh, he takes him seriously. He trains him as a future king. You know, Stephen Alford at Cambridge has called this training for operational kingship. He treats him as a sort of grown-up adult. Somebody who, of course, naturally, uh, Edward is being manipulated to a great extent, but basically Edward thinks that he's really being constructively brought up, not just to study, but as an operational king. And by the way, you know, we know so much about, in, in a book like this, you could write a whole 400-page book about Edward's education. There is so much evidence for this. It's absolutely stunning. And, of course, you can just imagine the academics have, because, of course, academics are interested in books and learning, uh, and they think, oh, this is wonderful. Here is a boy who was studious and was doing this, that and the other. I have to tell you that all Edward wanted to do was to hunt, go out in armour, uh, this sort of thing. Um, Edward was not a... He was made to do it. He was actually beaten into it. Don't think that there was a whipping boy in Edward's reign. Edward got a thrashing from one of his tutors uh, on, one, on, one famous, on one famous occasion. But on the last day of Edward's formal education, when he's 15, he writes in his diary, thank God. Thank God I'm out of here. Uh, it was his last Greek exercise. And he goes off on a royal progress at 15. He beetles off straight down to the south coast, inspects all the fortifications, draws out plans for the complete rebuilding of the fortifications at Portsmouth on both sides of the river at astronomical cost, and sends them off. This is, this is, what, he want, this is what he wants to do. He, uh, you can see he, he knows how to dress and he likes expensive clothes. Those are incre- that picture is very, very faded but you can still see that those are incredibly expensive uh, clothes. Uh, And, of course, he's also into the cult of personality, uh, as Henry was. Edward also, if you believe believe the documents, also shares his father's cruelty, uh, because um, there's a a report of him. He kept his favourite falcon in his bedroom, that one day he's fed up with his count, he's frustrated by not being allowed to do the things he wants, and he takes this falcon and he, he plucks it alive in front of his councillors, tears it into four pieces and says that that's how I'm going to treat you when I've come of age and, and come into my inheritance. Again, you know, is this 
as the Italians say, ben trovato, or is, is, it, is, is it real? You know, you choose. Of course, the thing that we know about Edward is that he was also brought up as a Protestant. Uh, and the two guys responsible, this is, um, there is no portrait of John Cheek, Edward's principal schoolmaster. John Cheek was a friend of William Cecil. He'd been educated at St. John's College, Cambridge. He was into all the latest things in the Italian Renaissance, but he was also a Protestant. Cranmer has undergone a Protestant conversion to the Swiss memorialist view uh, of um, theology uh, by the middle of Edward's reign. These two, these two are the closest people. These are the people going to Edward most of the time and influencing his mind. And it's in Edward's reign that um, the second prayer book, uh, the second act of uniformity, take England firmly into the Protestant camp. Henry VIII, you remember, got rid of the Pope, but Henry was not a Protestant. The one thing that Henry was not was a Protestant. Uh, Edward changes all of, all of that. And of course, even as a nine-year-old boy, he's styled supreme head of the church and he believes he is. So that remarkable transformation has taken place. Now, of course, as a result of that, uh, when Edward is, again, a great myth, Edward is not a sickly child. He's absolutely fine until he gets measles uh, in the spring of 1552. Measles is not great. It messes up your immune system. He survives the measles, no scars, but his immune system is affected. And the problem is he catches something nasty the following year, just after Christmas in the new year of 1553. Most of the book states tuberculosis. There's absolutely no evidence for that. Um, it could be that. It's much more likely to have been um, um, basically bronchial pneumonia, uh, leading to something that the physicians call um, pleural empyena. Uh, which is basically a huge sort of corruption of the, um, you know, the, basically the area around the lungs and outside the lungs, and you basically just, you know, all the symptoms match this. Your skin just collapses, and you know, you spit up black sputum, and everything just falls to pieces. Your kidneys fail. You go yellow. You get jaundice and go yellow. All of all all of all of this. The physicians actually remarked that he died of exactly the same thing that Fitzroy had died of in 1536, again, which is quite interesting. But Edward, Edward, now I think about this. Mary, in Edward's reign, has done everything that she can to subvert this swing towards Protestantism. In her house, indeed all of her houses, remember Mary has about 20 houses because she's a king's daughter. She invites anybody who wants to, passers-by, anybody off the highway to hear mass in all of these houses all at the same time, even though she's not there as a way of subverting this settlement. The Emperor Charles V, her cousin, the leader of the Catholic Court in Wright Street says, stop doing it. You're a silly girl. This is petulant. You've been given a license to hear Mass in your own chapel to satisfy your conscience. Settle for that. Don't cause all this trouble. But she takes no notice. Uh, Edward doesn't want her to succeed. But he also doesn't want Elizabeth to succeed. Because, well, she was, Henry had made her illegitimate and she's never been religitimized. He also doesn't think she's the right sort of Protestant because, of course, Elizabeth is the sort of Protestant that Catherine Parr was. The sort of evangelical, the halfway house, yes, but not the full, you know, Monty. Uh, and so she is to be excluded. So Edward sets about excluding his two half-sisters from the throne. And that is his first draft in his own handwriting. My device for the succession. And this, you know, it's complicated, but we'll just skip it over. Where does he, where does he look to? He looks to the line of his aunt, his aunt Mary, who'd been Queen of France, whose daughter was Lady Frances Brandon, who'd married Henry Grey, who by this time was Duke of Suffolk. 
uh, and they had three, they had sons that died, but they had three living daughters, Lady Jane Grey, Lady Catherine Grey, and Lady Mary Grey. Now, um, what Edward decides is, you see, he was just as much, the, if you like, the male chauvinist as dad. He never wanted or intended to leave the throne to a woman. You can actually unpick this draft. If we had this as a close-up, you would see that, in fact, the first version of this, which is you know, the bit not affected by the crossings out, uh, he decided to skip over uh, Frances Brandon for some reason, I think because she was a woman. And he decided that he would leave uh, the throne to the male heirs of Lady Jane Grey, failing whom the male heirs of Catherine Grey, failing whom the male heirs of Mary Grey. And that's his first version, because he's sick, but he's not that sick. He's not within sight of death. And then, suddenly, he's in sight of death, and everything changes. Now, of course, the Earl of Northumberland, you know, you can argue about this. Historians have argued about this. I mean, the great war of the, you know, experts about this. You know, some people think this was Edward's, all Edward's plan. Some people think it's Northumberland's on the make from the beginning. I don't. I think it's Edward's plan from the beginning, but Northumberland sees the opportunity. Because once Edward starts to think this way, he marries his fourth son, his 19-year-old son, Guildford Dudley, to the Lady Jane Grey at the end of May. A fitting and you're all going to say to me, yeah, but why marry his fourth son? You know, why not marry his... Because the answer is, all the others were married. The only one that's free is the 19-year-old Guildford Dudley. And Guildford Dudley is, a, is, is, in Edward's eyes, a sort of hero figure. On his sickbed, when he hears of this marriage, Edward says, this guy is destined to be a celebrity. You know, he's destined for the, for the finest things. He's a man for whom I have the highest possible opinion. And although this is an interpret, what I'm going to say now is an interpretation of events, it's not something in the documents, my money is on Edward thinking that he was settling the succession in favour of King Guildford and Lady Jane. Uh, and Edward dies, of course, the Jane Grey thing, it doesn't stick, because they haven't had time to do all the homework. If, if, was it legal? You can ask me in the questions afterwards. Uh, uh, but this is, a, this, is, is, this is a fascinating episode because it's the first time in English history that a ruler has been in or out of the succession as the basis of a religious test. In or out on, if you like, purely ideological grounds rather than heredity. The Reformation makes a huge difference to how people start to think about the succession. But Mary does get the throne. Here's another picture that's a fiction. She's with her husband. She was, very, she was pro-Spanish. She was pro-Catholic. The first thing she did, she couldn't marry her cousin Charles V because he was too old and he was fed up and he retired to the monastery of Yostan, abdicated with his art collection. Uh, uh, so she marries uh, Philip. Uh, the picture is by Hans Ewerth. It's dated 1558. It's impossible. Uh, the last time Philip was in the country was July 1557. Uh, it's painted at the, it, it represents a room facing the river on the Palace of Whitehall. If you look at this, you perhaps can't see from here, but if you look through that window, you will not see that view from any window on the site of the um, Palace of the Whitehall. So again, it's a, fictional, it's a fictional view, but nonetheless, they're reasonably accurate. Whoever did this had seen both, well, Hewitt had seen both Philip uh, and, 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 Mary, and Mary. I mean, Mary thought it was going to be her dream marriage. It, 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 it wasn't. Uh, of course, she was unable to get pregnant, but she thought she was pregnant. Uh, she had a pseudo-pregnancy. You can debate the reasons. A medical expert at Tommy's that I, St Thomas's that I did a film with, you know, years ago, 
said that she had a prolactinoma, which is a, a tumour of the pituitary gland, which would create all the symptoms that she had, a false pregnancy, lactation, um, you know, lack of um, uh, vision affected, leading to blindness, migraines, the, the works. This, it fits, but, you know, who knows? Without a body, you can't really make a diagnosis. Uh, but, um, um, of course, the moment that she doesn't have this child, uh, Philip, you know, she's no good, she's no good to him. And from the moment that she doesn't have a child, Philip starts protecting Elizabeth, because she's the next one, and he might marry her. In fact, he has a different plan later, but at first that's the reason. Because, of course, Mary still hates Elizabeth. And from the very beginning, Elizabeth, Elizabeth had actually been rather good. You know, they, 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 they didn't like each other, but they were loyal to their father's um, legacy. And during the Grain, Jane Grey thing, Elizabeth did help Mary to get the throne. Her reward for that was to be sent for and told she basically had to worship as a Catholic or else. Uh, and she sort of said she was. Elizabeth was canny. She was a Nicodemite. She, if she was forced to conform, Nicodemus, because in St. John's Gospel, Nicodemus goes to see Jesus by night because he doesn't want to be seen. Uh, so, um, but, so in the end, she does conform to the Mass. But to cut a long story short, um, Elizabeth is, is, says Mary, implicated in Wyatt's rebellion, the re rebellion that followed the failure of the Jane Grey coup. Sir Thomas Wyatt, in alliance with Jane Grey's father, Henry Grey, uh, and some other people, they attempt a coup in favour of Elizabeth uh, at the beginning of Mary's reign. It fails, that's how Jane Grey gets executed, because Mary decides that she, Jane Grey is too dangerous, and so she's executed. For all those reasons, Mary decides that Elizabeth is to be interrogated She's sent to the tower for two months. She's absolutely in fear of her life. Uh, she is then sent to, a, uh, to basically house arrest at Woodstock for the next 11 months. Uh, she is um, then summoned to Hampton Court. And everybody thinks that this is because she's summoned to Hampton Court just when Mary says that she's pregnant with her first pseudo-pregnancy. And everybody thinks this is because Elizabeth had um, sent for John Dee to cast horoscopes for Mary, for Philip, uh, for their destinies, for herself. Actually, that isn't the reason. If you look here in the Acts of the Privy Council, you'll discover that Mary didn't find out about the horoscopes until two weeks after Elizabeth had been sent for to go to Hampton Court. Elizabeth was sent for so that Mary... She was sent for... She was kept in a um, small room, apart from the main royal apartments, for a few days. Then she was brought um, late at night by one of Mary's um, gentlewomen up to see uh, Mary... Uh, in her private room. And Mary basically tells her, great, I'm pregnant, you're out. She has summoned her to gloat. Trouble is, it all backfires. The minute the, f the, minute the, f the, f the pregnancy is revealed to be you know, a pseudo-pregnancy, Philip is back off to Brussels. You know, he's no more time for Mary. This is a low point in their relationship. If you think they had a mar happy marriage, just think of Mary back at Whitehall afterwards scratching Philip's picture with her fingernails and then ch chucking it out of the room. Uh, that could never have been a successful uh, reign in the sense that if the king and queen don't get on, and Philip was not just a consort, he was king of England. The man who sent the Spanish Armada against England in 1558 in this period was king of England. People say, how did he know what to do when the Armada arrived? Of course he knew He'd been in the Tower loads of times. He knew everything about defences. He brought England into the war against France in 1557. He was in charge of the army. Of course he knew. Uh, but so Mary is, um, she brings Elizabeth in uh, to gloat. But of course it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. And then there's another rebellion. 
the so-called Ashton-Dudley plot. It's another small coup, but it, again, it's to put Elizabeth on the throne. Did Elizabeth know about any of this? She said, of course I don't. A bit like Peter Mandelson, you know, when something appeared, well, there's a leak that appears in the papers. Arms there. Or indeed William Cecil, when he was leaking things that Elizabeth didn't want to be published, but he, he wanted to get out. Or Thomas Cromwell, when he did the same to Henry VIII. This was a very sophisticated age. Did, did Elizabeth know? She knew not to know. Uh, her people, the people close to her, they knew. Uh, but Elizabeth is once more in trouble, but Philip gets her off. Why? Because when uh, Mary sent for her to gloat, and she is um, being basically given um, the third degree by her sister uh, in that private room late that night, Philip, like Polonius, is hiding behind the arras. And he, he, sees, he sees this girl, and he says, Righto, you know, I can do business with her. You know, maybe I'll marry her, maybe I won't, maybe I'll put one of my sidekicks as it indeed becomes the plan, Emmanuel Philip Arabs the voice to marry her, but basically I can do business with this woman, and he protects her. He enrages his wife for the rest of the reign, protecting Elizabeth's claim to the succession. Uh, and Mary tries once more, like Edward, to exclude her half-sister in favour of her great friend Margaret Douglas, who'd married the Earl of Lennox, whom we met before, but it doesn't work, and Elizabeth does become queen. That is another fake. Elizabeth in her coronation robes. Yes, she wore coronation robes. They look just like that. We know this because they're fully described in the, again, in the Lord Chamberlain's records, again in LC2. Uh, they're described here. She looked like that, but that painting is posthumous. Uh, the, the earliest it could have been done is 1601. It's probably done after her death. To rem It wasn't customary to do a coronation portrait. This is the first one, and it's done after Elizabeth's death. Uh, there is an earlier, if you're an expert in art history, you'll know there's an earlier um, 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 illuminated um, manuscript which has a, 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 a miniature, uh, which looks rather similar, but it's probably about 1577. And we also know, but not from the painting, but from the manuscripts here in the Lord Chambers records, that these were Mary's coronation robes, altered so that the bodice is tighter and frankly looks sexier, that's why that was done. And also the sleeves were made more elaborate. But this is, this is um, Mary's coronation robe, translated as they put it, that means altered. Translated means altered. Was this for reasons of expense? Of course it wasn't. They spent a fortune on Elizabeth's coronation. No expense was spared. She, wore, she got her own back. She wore her half-sister's coronation robes to gloat. I've got there now. Uh, of course, having become queen, she faced exactly the same problem that Henry had predicted in The Glass of Truth. Should she marry? Should she not? Should she marry a subject? That was the problem with Dudley. He was already married and he was a subject. What I just want to leave you with is, was that what Elizabeth really looked like? Of course it wasn't. That's what she looked like in 1560. That's a very, very rare image of Elizabeth as she really looked like before her image was controlled by the equivalent of Saatchi and Saatchi mm -hmm. in 1563. That's what she looked like. Um, how do we know for sure she was already queen? Do you see this, this um, hatched background? That's the paints faded, it's the cloth of estate, it's the cloth that was behind the throne and how do I know that? Because in that version uh, a later version of a, a painting of the family of Henry VIII, which Elizabeth had done in 1572 and gave as a gift to Sir Francis Walsingham. Can you see it there? So that's how we know what Elizabeth uh, looked like. But of course, the story of Elizabeth's reign is precisely the story of the dilemma that Henry had foreseen. 
in that preface to the glass of truth? Should she marry? Should she not? What would have happened if you'd married a husband? What, did, what happened to Mary Queen of Scots when she married Lord Darnley? What happened to Jane Grey when she became Queen uh, and she was in the Tower? Uh, because that was the safest place to be. When she, became, she was in the royal apartments at the Tower, what happens? This guy, Guildford Dudley, he comes to her and he says, Great, now I'm king. And she's a woman in spirit. She says, No, you're not. The most I'm going to do is make you a duke. We know this from a manuscript not here, but in the Escorial, in, uh, in, uh, just outside Madrid. Uh, the most I'm going to do is make you a duke. Right, he says. I'm going on a sex strike. Okay. Ha 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 ha. It's not what you think. No sex, no succession, no heir. And the earls of Pembroke and Arundel have to intervene to, 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 to calm this. That's one of the great might of beings in, in history. If you were a woman, monarch in the 16th century, if you were indeed a daughter of Henry VIII, you were damned if you didn't, you were damned if you didn't. Thank you very much. This talk was recorded on the 16th of April 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright at the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>